Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Funsky. Drug addiction can be a big problem in the LGBTQ community. Adults who identify as gay, lesbian, or transgender are more than twice as likely as their heterosexual counterparts to report using an illicit drug within the past year. They're more than twice as likely to report misusing prescription drugs, to using methamphetamine, and to using cocaine. That's according to the 2015 National Survey on Drug Use and Health. And so for locals in recovery, dating apps aimed at the LGBTQ community can be a minefield. On sites like Grindr and Scruff, people aren't just offering companionship. In many cases, they're also offering drugs. So joining us today to talk about the challenges this can present is Jeff Small. He's a former KSDK reporter who found himself making news in 2018 after he was found with meth in his possession at a traffic stop. He's now a concierge and a product specialist for a local hospital, and he joins us today by phone. So, Jeff Small, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, I understand you've been speaking out because you recently celebrated more than a year in recovery. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent, doing excellent, and enjoying this new phase of my life. Now, I know this old phase, um, I understand it began with cocaine and it later spiraled into meth. Did dating apps play any role in supplying you with those drugs? I would say with meth uh, in particular. I mean, it, it was always very, very easy to find if I was just looking for someone to use it with, if I was trying to buy it, or in the rare cases I had something extra if I wanted to get rid of it and sell it. It was always extremely easy. And when you say people are on there selling, I mean, are these um, big-time dealers, or these are just somebody with a little extra that they're looking to hang out with somebody and, and do it together? No, it, from my, in my experience, it was usually the person who uh, was just trying to make some extra cash and probably just enough to cover their own habits so they didn't have to pay for their own usage so they could just kind of cover what they what they used you know make a little extra and kind of keep going back and you know without having to go in their own pocket so to speak uh to cover their own habit and in in many cases um you know you could hang out with somebody and and leave with a little bit extra just kind of a little to-go bag it's kind of what i frequently got and so it, it was what kept me coming back our other two guests today also have um, a good perspective on this issue. We're joined by Brandon Reed. He's a housing intake coordinator for the nonprofit Criminal Justice Ministry. He's also a board member of Pride St. Louis. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you. And we're joined by Jason Ecker. He's a licensed clinical social worker, and he estimates that nearly 50% of his clients are members of the LGBTQ community. So, Jason, welcome. Thank you. Brandon, in your experience, I'm wondering what kind of role these dating apps play in, in helping people find drugs. I mean, I think they've definitely made it easier. Um, I think that, you know, back in the day there wasn't dating apps, you know, so now that everybody kind of has an iPhone or some type of smartphone, it just makes accessibility just a little bit easier, um, a lot easier, actually. And for you, you got clean in 2013. I did. What's your sense of how things have changed since your life changed in such a big way? Um, I think things have just gotten worse. I know that, you know, I'm still on the apps, so, you know, for full disclosure, I think that um, it's just more evident. I think there's not as much as people trying to hide it as it was when I was using Active. People, People were being real sneaky back in the day. I mean, it felt like it felt like more of an underground kind of thing. And um, now it's not. I mean, it, it, it can't not be. Um, you know, it's on an app. Everybody can kind of see it. So the accessibility and visibility is just increased. And when you say everyone can see it, um, what are some sort of uh, clues that people are giving? Yeah. I'm sure they're not coming right out and saying drugs for sale. Sure. Um, so one of the big things. So one of the. Uh, 
uh, names for meth is Tina um, in the gay community. So one of the things people do is they capitalize their T's um, and kind of their profile. So that's something that's usually pretty visible. I think that, um, and then you can also tell by people's pictures. Um, I think there's certain picture characteristics that definitely <laughs> define um, someone who's actively using methamphetamines. Jeff, is this something that you noticed there, that the pictures were kind of a dead giveaway? Yeah, I'm, I'm, as Brandon is talking, I'm, I'm literally thinking of, you know, profiles that I've seen or, uh, you know, some things that I've even looked for when I'm online, like the Tina or ICE, you know, a symbol of ICE. That's another mm-hmm. another word that's used. So anybody with a symbol for ICE or it might say ICE, the number four, mm-hmm. sale. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> some actually surprisingly are very, very bold. And even when I was using, I'm like, my goodness, they, they're not hiding very much at all. Um, you know, there's, you know, if it's cocaine, you know, you might see a ski symbol. Mm-hmm. If somebody's going skiing, mm-hmm. um, and, and yeah, I mean, just some of some of the blatant, uh, you know, terminology or just like, pictures would actually just kind of make a person cringe. You know, but but the, for the person who's looking for that, again, that's quick and easy. You know, you could be from the comfort of your own home and find exactly what you're looking for, and the ability to get it in a matter of minutes. Jason, I'm wondering what kind of impact that has on clients who are in recovery, people who want to stop using. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think <clears throat> when I'm working with somebody who wants to either enter into recovery or uh, remain in recovery, you know, we talk a lot about triggers. And so, you know, there's some things that you can control and change and other things that you can't. So uh, if you used to go to a specific neighborhood to purchase drugs, you can avoid going to that neighborhood perhaps unless, you know, your parents happen to live down the street. And so you go there regularly and you can't avoid the trigger. So I think what happens on the apps is, you know, people feel as if nowadays it's the only way to meet people to date or um, or they don't want to go to the bars because of what's going on in the bars. So they think that the apps are a, a way to find community. And then in looking through the pictures on the app and the profiles on the app, you know, they will come across people advertising drugs for sale. So I would refer to that as a trigger. So uh, how do you deal with that? I mean, you obviously, it doesn't help to be super lonely when you're struggling with right. recovery. What would you tell a client? Well, you know, one of the things that we talk about uh, with addiction and recovery is that you know, it really, at the end of the day, it comes down to you. And you can't, you know, foolproof your world so that you never come across anything. I mean, if you think about people trying to recover from alcohol use, it's everywhere in our society. I mean, you'd have to, you know, walk around with your eyes closed to not see some advertisement or, you know, uh, being in a restaurant where you're, seeing it, you're, where you're seeing it used. You know, it's different with harder drugs, you know, although alcohol is a pretty hard drug. Um, it's for sure. <laughs> you know, and people advertise drinking all the time on the apps, and I don't think we talk as much about that being a problem, but, you know, I find that to be uh, just as symptomatic sometimes as uh, some of the harder drugs. Um, but it comes down to you, and so if you're going to, you know, I let my clients know that if you're going to venture onto the apps, you need to understand that you're going to come across this and have a plan for how to deal with it, just like you would need to have a plan to deal with anything else. What I think is so alluring, I'll just add about the apps, is that you know people are advertising experiences. So the problem with you know stimulants in the gay community is the experience that people have using stimulants and having sex. And so when you see a person saying that they're using the drug and inviting you to come over, it's not just the drug addiction that's coming up for you. It's the entire experience and that recall of of having had those experiences in the past, and that's a really powerful, uh, you know, drawing people into. 
And we want to hear from you if, you if you're listening. Are you in recovery and have you struggled with being around certain people, certain social circles, maybe certain apps? How do you deal with that? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Brandon, as, as you've said, you're in recovery. You're mm-hmm. on these apps. Mm-hmm. Do you have that kind of game plan in the back of your head like Jason advises his clients to do? I mean, absolutely. You have to be very, very cognizant of, you know, you're going on there for a specific purpose. I think that, you know, he's absolutely right about triggers. You know, there's definitely key instances where you meet somebody and, you know, potentially you're very, very attracted to this person and you may find out that they're actively partying. You have to be prepared and you have to have set up some type of um, plan to kind of get away from that. Um, I know for me, it's not as big of an issue anymore. I really, really, um, I, I'm really, really picky about who I interact with on that type of stuff because, you know, the last thing I want to do is jeopardize my recovery. You're avoiding the skiing uh, emojis. Skiing, ice cream, capital T's, all of it. Um, all of it. <laughs> Plants. I feel like marijuana is being yeah. represented here, too. There's yeah, a lot of right. plant emojis that identify right. marijuana for sale. Yeah. Jeff, as, as somebody who's also in recovery, I'm wondering how you deal with this. Yeah. So I, I actually spent a considerable amount of time when I was, you know, at the early stages of my recovery, going through every means that I had to either get drugs or somebody find me. And I literally, when I would get on social media, I would, as soon as I saw emoji or anything that looked like it was about drug activity, I'd block. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I mean, I would literally go through the entire profile, block, block, block. And even people that maybe I had favored in the past, I would, you know, block them. Mm-hmm. I, but I did the same thing through uh, Facebook. I did literally everywhere, including my phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, and mind you, that it's not foolproof, but it definitely is a, a, a big layer of protection there that, that you know, can't help me avoid those things. But I mean, I, so I would even go seeking that out just for that reason. And, and, and certain people would slip through the cracks because it would, what would start as an ordinary conversation would, hey, by the way, do you party? Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and that's what I would, typically I'd just block right there. Right there that, that conversation would be done. Or sometimes I would say, no, then block. I mean, mm-hmm. but I, I, don't in, I don't entertain even the thought of it anymore because I'm not I'm not perfect and I'm certainly not that strong yet that I think you know I can just be in a situation of anything and be comfortable enough to say oh no I'm good um, I'm not that strong and I'm okay saying that I saw Jason doing a lot of nodding while you were walking <laughs> through some of this blocking um, Jason what are your thoughts on that <clears throat> yeah I mean that's a really proactive way you know to get ahead of it I mean that's again what we would suggest any client do with uh, looking at their phone through people that they used to use with, bought with, you know, the same thing applies to social media and that, you know, can definitely reduce the exposure um, that one has. However, uh, you know, even getting into experiences and then maybe you have some interaction with somebody and you've shared pictures and commentary and then they come out and, you know, identify that they're doing drugs and I think that's where you really need to have a support system in place that you could reach out to if needed because... You know, like I said, I think that's where the real tug comes. Hearing how pervasive this is, though, I just, I really feel for you guys. I mean, that just, that seems like it would be tough. And for those of us who struggle with self-control, I just, I don't even know what I'd do in that situation. Brandon, do you think that the companies running these apps need to do a better job of weeding out these kind of solicitations? You know, I'm not all for um, censorship. You know, I don't think that's their job. I think, I think as individuals, it's our responsibility to present ourselves how we want to be presented, right? Um, And I don't necessarily um, play stigma 
on people who use drugs. Like if they have every right to do it, if they want to do it, they can. Um, I have to just protect myself because I know that's, you know, you know, using methamphetamine specifically with that drug, it's a whole different ball game than using, you know, and I've used every substance in the book. I mean, that for me was a big eye opener just because I was just not aware of how dark it could get. Um, and I wasn't even aware of how many gay men used it, um, mm-hmm. even in this town. I mean, once I really, really kind of dove into this uh, this world, I was just shocked. I mean, there's people who I you never saw during the daytime. I mean, they would, you know, yeah. it, it, was, it was to me, it was just a, a very dark experience. Jason, why do you think that is, that there is this correlation um, between people who are in this community and maybe more drug use than their heterosexual counterparts? <clears throat> That's a great question. In fact, I did a lot of research on that uh, in my studies. And <clears throat> back then, the statistic was three times uh, the rate of addiction as the general population. So I'm happy to hear that it's gone down since I did that work. Um, it, it comes down to dealing with stigma, stigma and, deal, and dealing with part of being uh, a marginalized community, mm-hmm. right? So we'll, we start to see that anyone in a marginalized community starts to accumulate shame or the sense of there's something wrong with me, and that's probably one of our worst feelings as humans. And so when I have that feeling, I look for something to help me not have it, to cope with it. And self-medication through drugs and alcohol is a pretty innocent uh, start to addiction. I mean, we all have had the experience of having had a first drink, seeing, you know, with family, et cetera. And so to the person that's struggling with shame and they have that drink or that, you know, a toke of a, of a joint and suddenly they're like, oh, I feel better. I didn't know I could feel better. And the brain's like, we should do more of that. Mm-hmm. So, that, I mean, that's how it starts. It's not like anyone sets out to ruin their life, um, you know, to deal with the problem. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a progressive um, disease. Jeff, do you think shame played any role for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, the more um, I did it and saw things crumble around me in my life, I felt bad about it. And so I think um, many of the people that I was getting high with, they also had their own similar dysfunction and devastation in their lives. So that was a draw for us. We could each sit around and talk about what else we've lost. And, oh, yeah, well, you're not going to work? Well, me either. I don't have a job, actually. So, hey, good. Well, let's just get high then. Um, and it was just this crazy, almost a sick uh, life that kind of kept me in that mode because I didn't really feel very worthy. Um, I didn't feel, I, I kind of felt ugly and, and, you know, inside and out. Um, and the people I was around were the same. So we were good. You know, nobody could judge us because we were all in the same boat. And now that you're in recovery, um, how has your, your feelings of, of self changed? Uh, I, I absolutely am, have done a night and day of the, the person I used to be because I, I had gotten to the point where I literally didn't, with, with the exception of places that I had to go, I didn't want to be anywhere. I just kind of wanted to stay in my own little shell. But now, I mean, I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm proud of the, the life that I've made now. And even, again, just doing something like this, talking about it. I mean, I think that's a huge, huge part, not just for me, but for, for those in recovery to actually talk about in particular mess, I mean, and just how how bad it can get and how much damage you can do to your life, but talking about how we can also rebound from this. And so it's given me a new passion. It's given me a voice. And I think I'm speaking for many people who are still locked in that shame and they don't feel comfortable saying, yeah, I've got a problem and this problem is really, really bad. And it's, you know, I don't know who to talk about. And so, yeah, I'm in a position where I feel good. I feel healthy. I think I look healthy. And, and I'm happy. 
I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. We're talking to Jeff Small, a former KSDK reporter, and Brandon Reed, who is a board member at Pride St. Louis and also works as a housing intake coordinator, and licensed clinical social worker Jason Ecker. I want to go to the phone lines in a minute, but Jason, I know there's something you wanted to add to what Jeff was just saying. Um, yeah, well, when Jeff was talking, it made me think about another implication of the apps is that, you know, people that ended up, you know, going down that that rabbit hole of, of you know, or ended up addicted to crystal meth, typically were also isolating. And so the apps also provided a way for really isolated, heavily addicted people to connect, which is something that did not exist, you know, before the apps. And so I think that's also part of the, and we were seeing a resurgence of methamphetamine use in the gay community and the problems. And for a while, you know, HIV helped to control that. And, and now there's solutions to not catching HIV. So people, you know, are re-engaged in that world. And so, you know, being able to connect with other users um, has made it easier for people to continue their addiction. So this next wave of crystal meth you're seeing, it's its really taking off in part because of this. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's terrifying. Um, I do want to go to the phone lines. Patty is calling from Dogtown. Um, Patty, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hey, I'm going to, let me get off my radio. I, you don't hear any feedback right now, do you? It, it sounds good right now. <laughs> okay, super, then it's working because technology kind of like, woo. Um, what a huge talk, a topic this is. What a great uh, opportunity for all the people you've already had on and myself to share. Um, addiction is a really huge issue in the, in the gay community. I'm on the advent of uh, five years sober. Congratulations. And, uh, hey, thanks a lot, because it's not easy. Um, because even, even in the absence of the drugs that I use or the alcohol I use, you know, it's still me under all of that. And so... The, the process, the journey is more of a changing me and not so much the drug use. And then everything changes to the better. But um, in the gay community, you know, uh, there's, such, there's such a drive for um, um, uh, appearances, too, and, and appearances on every level. And, and do, do I... At, at, am I an okay person, you know, and, and, and I never thought I was. Mm. And there's so much about that drive for drugs and alcohol as being the solution, you know, and until it kind of turned on me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I'm really, I'm really lucky that, that um, I found uh, a process, a program that helped turn all of me around. And, and it, this program that, that helped you, is there a name for it or a way that, that others who might want to use it? Well, it's a 12-step program, and, and um, it, 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 it's just a process and a group of people that put me on a path to self-discovery mm-hmm. and changing. You know, I don't want to promote that. I'm not here to promote that. But anything that we do, any any right piece of of help that we seek out and implement in our lives that helps us become the people we were always meant to be is huge. I had to get off the apps. I honestly had to get off the apps because of the obsessions in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it came out all different ways in substance abuse in in meeting people. And, um, and it was about a year and a half ago it was December um, that that when I got a new mentor, if you will, the sponsor or whatever you want to call it, and we had a conversation, and uh, he was very helpful, and he said, you know, you'd be better getting off altogether. Hmm. And my sponsor is straight, 
All right. So, so uh, I what, did, what an education uh, it is for both of us. To, <laughs> yes. To work, to, to work together because because the solution that puts me on this path to become the right person isn't just universal for gay people. You know, mm-hmm. it's universal for anybody to do the next right thing. Put yourself in a in in a favorable position. You know, and uh, who knew? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't. This uh, I can't even tell you that I am so not the person. Well, Patty, I, I am so great to, I'm so um, happy to hear that. I mean, it's just, it's such a happy ending and, and that you're doing so well. So I want to thank you for that call. And Jason, I'm wondering, uh, Patty spoke of it as sort of being this universal thing. Do you think that's true? Or do you think there are some specific different steps that LGBTQ members need to go through to, to get to that point that Patty's obviously doing so well? Well, I think recovery is there are some universal tenets that work for a lot of people. And then what I also would recommend is that people figure out their individualized program or what works for them. And so, you know, you need to take the program that has been tested and implemented over years and then look at your own problem and your own experiences and then tailor it to to address the things that you think are going to be problems for you. So we used to, you know, we'd have clients, I worked in a treatment center, we had people fill out a relapse prevention plan. So it was like, well, what do you think are your triggers and what are you gonna do in the face of those? So that's how I think you bring the solution, um, you know, to the individual that also is, you know, in a book somewhere. Um, I'm gonna go back to the phone lines. Um, Eddie is calling from Webster Groves. Eddie, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm in recovery from sexual compulsivity and uh, I have friends who, you know, they put the meth pipe down, they get off the meth, but then, uh, you know, they were going into those sexual situations, hooking up with people who had drugs, and when it came to sex, they were powerless. They they were, you know, and once they kind of crossed that threshold of uh, compulsivity, it was Katie bar the door, and, and uh, so they'd relapse on the meth, and so then they had to address the, the sex addiction, and... Uh, you know, by the time we realize we have these problems, uh, a lot of times we're, we we don't have a lot of resources. And I know for me, uh, I have friends in, in uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous and Sexual Compulsives Anonymous that I can call 24-7 every day. I go to meetings, you know, every week. And, you know, even if I don't have good insurance coverage, you know, for therapy or treatment, I still have this community and uh, it really has been a lifesaver for me. And, you know, you can't see my face, and I'm not giving my last name, so I'm, I'm sure. anonymous. So if I can tell you, you know, that those are the organizations that, that have been so helpful for me. And, and uh, it's, it can be real frustrating to, to line up those uh, support resources when you're at a bottom, mm-hmm. you know, when you're really desperate and you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. So the meetings have been uh, really a lifesaver. Eddie, thank you so much for that. And again, it's great to hear that, that you're doing so well, too. Brandon, I yeah. saw you nodding when he was talking about how some of these addictions can go hand in hand or play off each other. Is, is that something that you've witnessed or experienced? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, just kind of understand why methamphetamine is the way it is. It just provides a heightened experience already, like, you know, especially in a sexual situation. It provides just even more increased um, 
pleasure. So I think, and I've heard it from most of my friends, including myself, I think it's just very, very, very challenging to kind of get used to having those heightened experiences and then all of a sudden kind of have to resort back to just having kind of go back to normal. And that becomes very challenging because they become very, very intertwined. Um, I was just having a conversation with somebody the other night. Um, You know, they're really, really struggling with Mm -hmm. how do they enjoy sex now that they're not high on speed. And I don't have that answer. And, you know, I think it just takes time. I think Jason might be able to kind of give a little more insight on that. But, you know, it's a that's probably the bigger problem, I think, than I see when people just use in meth. It's the sexual component. Yeah, absolutely. So every time we have an experience where we've altered our mood, um, we change, you know, we literally raise or lower the bar in our brain as to what do we find exciting. You know, exciting is we've exceeded the bar. You know, okay is we've met, you know, we're at the bar. <laughs> and so people that use drugs or alcohol chronically, um, you know, the bar is continually shifting and increasing. So it takes more alcohol to feel drunk and happy and it takes more meth to feel excited. And so, you know, they are those, they're progressive for that reason. And so when we stop using, that's why people, you know, the first week, the first month after they stop using, they feel awful. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the physical withdrawal of the chemical. It's also that the brain is like, well, this sucks, you know. And so, but over time, the bar will lower. And so it's really about being patient through that. So, you know, you reset the, the pleasure bar uh, in your and, brain. And Jeff, can you attest to that? Does that pleasure bar get reset? Yeah, I, I think it does. But absolutely, I, I, I would concur that, yeah, I mean, it, it was a challenge for me to get you know, from sex to just even being around people in general and not being high and just having to readjust. And if you're hanging out with people, not assuming that they just want something that you have or, um, you know, that people genuinely are interested in what you have to say or you can enjoy a normal conversation with people. I mean, it, it was it was quite an adjustment for me. But, um, you know, it, it, it does change. I know at least it did for me, but it, it by all means was very, very difficult. Well, I want to thank all of our guests for being here today. Um, it, it sounds like this is a really difficult journey, but from talking to so many people today who've been able to make that, um, I hope it provides hope for anybody who's listening out there. So, Jeff Small, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, guys. And Brandon Reed, thank you yeah. for being here. And Jason Eckert, thank you for sharing your, um, your expertise in this subject. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.